Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. And even though, like David, Jesus had gathered a band of followers, and there are similarities, aren't there? I mean, David had his band of merry men that were discontents and everything else. Jesus reached out and picked the most unlikely people to follow him as well. But they weren't engaging in the same kinds of things. It wasn't military kind of stuff going on here, but instead... They were engaging in humble service. It's possible with that view that this would have raised some questions in John's mind as to whether Jesus was truly the Messiah or just another great prophet and teacher. And that's plausible. That's a plausible explanation given that by and large that was the thinking of the Jews of that day. It's why the Jews rejected Jesus. It's why many of the Jews even to this day rejected Jesus, you know, continue to reject Jesus because he didn't come in the role that they thought he would come in. They were waiting for a David, a king. And that wasn't Jesus' call in his first coming. It will be in his second, but it wasn't in the first. But let's keep in mind that even though that could be an explanation, let's keep in mind that John had the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. And, and, and failing to discern Jesus' role in his first coming as a result of failing to understand what the prophetic scriptures actually foretold about him made that scenario highly unlikely. John knew the prophetic scriptures, and he had the Holy Spirit to give him discernment as he read the, Holy, uh, read the scriptures and the prophetic scriptures. So I find it highly unlikely that it was just that he was falling into the mode of the other Jews of his day, seeing uh, disappointed that he's not a messianic kind of kingly conqueror. So while those theories are worth noting, and, and I wanted to bring them up because you will hear them, I think the answer is much simpler than that. You know, in Matthew's account, we know that John was in prison when this moment takes place. John's in prison, and and when you think about this, he was likely weary and discouraged. You know, here he is. After all, he's been in prison for quite some time. Herod kept him there for a while, and he was there because he'd taken a bold stand for the Lord and because he called out Herod on his sinful lifestyle. Herod was sleeping with his brother Philip's wife, and he calls him out for him. And it would be quite natural for all of this to be wearing on John by this point in time and that there was discouragement in his heart. And even though John was a very spiritual man, like all human beings, he was not immune to weariness and discouragement. And out of that weariness and discouragement likely came the question, are you the one? Did I, did I misread this? Are you the one? You know, this is one of the things I love about the Bible. It reveals everything about people. It reveals everything. It reveals the good. It reveals the bad. It reveals even the ugly. <laughs> Right. And, and, and God doesn't hide the truth of humanity from us in his word. He just doesn't do that. He doesn't sanitize things by giving us the good stuff about people and then covering over the word today, canceling out the other stuff. Right. The not so good aspects of people's thinking and living 
in this fallen world. It's one of the things I enjoy about the book of Job. You know, I know people, when we went through that after a while, it became wearying too, because it just kept going in these cycles, but you got to see it all. And I've seen people over-spiritualize that book. When the book of Job is just a revelation of the struggle of, of hearts in the midst of things, good friends who suddenly become your counselors when they should just shut up and stay by your side. And Job, a man of God, who, who God says there's none other like him on the earth, you know, gets tested and suddenly he's like, I wish I never would have been born. I wish my mother would have just, you know, miscarried me when I was in the womb. I wish I would just die. This is just awful. We see these, these, these pictures of people. And, and there are so many people in this world that, that have trouble with the Bible because it doesn't sanitize, but I find joy in it. I find, I find it good that God wants me to see the whole picture. And you see, our problem is that we tend to to put great men and women of the Bible, even we do this, on on inappropriate pedestals in our hearts and 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 in our minds and and thinking of people like John, you know, or or Job or others as being these super spiritual servants, these super spiritual saints, in contrast to our own lives. But then God gives us this glimpse. He gives us this, this brief look into the reality of their lives. And even though they may have been tremendous servants, we also discover that they were just ordinary people like us. They were just like us with all of the weaknesses that we experience. You know, I, I think of the Apostle Paul. You know, if you know when he goes to Mars Hill and he preaches at Mars Hill where all the philosophers are gathered, right? And it, it, it's, it's an interesting passage because it tells us at the end that a few believed and he got done, right? Well, some have questioned whether Paul was a success up there or not. I, I don't think success is measured by how many believed. Success is measured by faithfully doing what God has called you to do. And Paul went and did what God called him to do. He preached to these philosophers, that had gathered. But it's interesting when you go on in the passages and he's moving on to Corinth, you get the sense that Paul's really struggling. And I've often wondered, was he struggling coming off of this, this moment, feeling like he was a failure? I don't know. But I, I, I know this, Paul was a man like all of us. And he struggled, and he had moments of disappointment, he had moments of discouragement, and he had moments when he just looked and asked the question, why me, the chiefest of all sinners? Why me? Why am I the one that God has called? You see, I like when I look at my Bible and I realize that these people are just ordinary people, and God wants us to know this. He wants us to know this. He wants us to know that it's natural for human beings to stumble, to have weak moments, to have doubts, and yet to know, and yet to know that he can still use us, and that he still wants to use us. These things in and of themselves are not necessarily disqualifiers. They can be, depending on what we choose to do with these things, but they're not necessarily disqualifiers. Just as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 27, chapter 1 and verse 27 of 1 Corinthians, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Yeah, exactly. The foolish and the weak of this world, that's me. I won't say you and me, right? You can decide. But he uses the foolish and he uses the weak. I am so glad when I come across passages like this and I see this because it gives me hope that I am not alone. 
that I'm not alone. It gives me confidence to know that when things are tough and, 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 and beating me down and I naturally begin to doubt, I naturally begin to question God, I can know that it doesn't make me a dismal spiritual failure. John's question reassures me that even the best of God's people have moments of weakness like this. And the Bible's filled with accounts. It's just filled with accounts. I am so glad for accounts like Elijah. You know, we just talked about Elijah and some of his successes, but in 1 Kings chapter 18, you, you probably know this one. It's when he's up on, on, on Mount Carmel. By the way, if you go to Israel, this will go up there. It's, it's an awesome site up there. But up on Mount Carmel, you know, he's gathered and he tells, you know, hey, let's get the prophets of Baal up here. And he tells him, tell you what, we'll have this little competition. We'll see who's God answers today. You know, you do your thing and see what God does. And then I'll do my thing. And, you know, they get up there and they're crying out for their God to do stuff because he puts what? He puts the sacrifice in the middle and he dumps water on everything. They're calling, they're cutting themselves and nothing's happening. Actually, language in the Hebrew is quite amusing because he basically says, where's your God? Well, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's in the bathroom, you know, while this is going on. And, and of course, then he walks up and he tells them to put even more water until everything's drenched. And he just simply looks to the Lord and the Lord drops fire down and then consumes, consumes these prophets of Baal, you know, puts them to death. And what a success, what a victory in this moment for him. Turn with me for a minute, though, to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 1. I want you to keep in mind what we're about to read is immediately after. This is like right after this event takes place. Great Elijah, great man of God, great prophet. 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and he took confidence in God and said, bring it on. No, what does it say? And he ran for his life. I just picture him, ah, you know, running away like Kevin and lost, you know, home alone. Yeah. Ah. Right? He ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father. So you know what that is? If I paraphrase that, just kill me now, Lord. That's what he said. Just kill me now. I'm going to die anyways. Just kill me now. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Oreb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? You know, this is like, What are you thinking, Elijah? What are you doing, dude? Why are you here? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. Listen to this. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Even after <laughs> the Lord miraculously sends his angel to lead him, you know? He's still discouraged. 
He's still totally, he has seen all that's happened. He's participated in everything on this tremendous victory up on Mount Carmel. He's seen it all. And then even with the angel coming, he's still discouraged. Just kill me now. I'm the only one left. There's nobody else. I'm it. And and yet, (laughs) how powerful that is to me. I hope it is to you because I get discouraged and I get doubtful. And I begin to wonder, what's the Lord doing? Why is this happening? What's going on? Is this just, there's something wrong with me? Something's going, these weak moments creep into our lives and, and we feel like we're the only ones that are like this. And then we start to feel guilty over it because we feel like we failed the Lord. We don't have enough faith. I got news for you. You don't have enough faith. I don't have enough faith, right? I'm the guy who looks at Jesus and says, I believe, but help my unbelief because these moments are far too common but they're far common for all human beings and god left these passages here for us so that we would know we are not alone and it doesn't disqualify us and it doesn't mean that he can't use us it's not about how we as the people of god will live our lives perfectly or fully in a spiritual context with absolute faith or how we're never going to experience moments of spiritual weakness or discouragement or doubt or fear. The Bible is the account of how God overcomes our human weaknesses and doubts and fears and lack of spirituality through his strength and grace alone. And then he uses us powerfully as examples of it all as he works it in us and he works it through us. That's the good news. And that should give you and me hope this morning. It really should. Hope that enables us to serve when we are weak, when we're discouraged, when we're tired, when we're in doubt, when we miserably fail. Like Paul, because of this reality, you and I, we can boldly declare, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Now, this is not, please don't think that I'm saying that our hearts, our desires shouldn't be to be super saints. I want to be a super saint, but I know this, I'm not going to become a super saint because I want to. I'm going to become a super saint because I recognize my weakness and I yield that weakness to Jesus so that he can bring his strength to bear in my life. That even has to do with your sinful tendencies, right? It has to do with recognizing them, not accepting them, not being content to live with them, but to recognize that you can't overcome them by your willpower. You don't have it in you. But to recognize that Jesus does, and he can use me, and he'll deal with these things if I will yield these things to him so that he can step in and begin to make those corrections in me. And watch what he does. So, Was this why John asked the question, is it because he's in prison and he's facing all these things in this moment and he's just worn down? I I don't know for sure. You know, I always tell you guys, I'll tell you if I'm unsure of things. I mean, the scriptures are not telling us exactly why he asked this question, but I would argue that this, this fits the context. It does seem to be the reason, and it's fitting the context of what's happening with John, that in this moment of his darkness, that he simply now has some doubts, and he wants some answers. But look at what happens next, and we'll leave off in this today, but look what happens in verse 20. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? 
And that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus now answers the question that these disciples of John have come to ask. And by the way, I think it makes it clear right here that it's not about their finding out. Oh, I'm sure it has a benefit to them. He specifically says, take the answer back to John. In other words, John's the one that asked. John needs the answer, so take this back to him. And what's the answer? Look at the evidence, John. Look at the evidence. The implication is that John, knowing the Scriptures in his divinely ordained, spirit-empowered role as an Old Testament prophet. And remember, John is an Old Testament prophet still, right? That in that role, with the Spirit working in him, knowing the Scriptures, that he will now make all of the connections. Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. All of these things Jesus tells tells them to tell John, and they're the very things that Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah. It's contained in the prophecies of Isaiah, things that John would know about. John, John is not an infant on these things. He knew the Scriptures. He knew in Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, that it said this, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. He knew that that was talking about Messiah. It's a messianic passage. He knew the messianic passage of Isaiah 61 and verse 1. Isaiah 61 and verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Jesus is simply saying, go tell John to look at all the scriptural evidence, and it'll answer all of his questions and quell all of his doubts. It'll take care of it. Folks, if you want to have your questions answered, if you want to have your doubts addressed, then my my counsel this morning, it's not mine, it's Jesus's, it's right from the word. Keep looking at the evidence. Keep looking at what you know to be true about Jesus. And and, and I'm not talking about listening to the things people tell you about Jesus. That can be valuable, but it can also be misleading because people form their own ideas about him. I'm not talking about looking to the ideas that you've formed about Jesus. I'm talking about looking at the evidence that the Scriptures proclaim, clearly proclaim, and declare about Jesus. Read the Bible for yourself, cover to cover. So many people, you know, in our Christian lives tell us to read this good book, watch this good teaching, you know, go get this video and, and listen to this one. And, every, and th- I'm not saying those things aren't valuable, but I'm just telling you the evidence you need to quell your doubts comes from the Scriptures themselves. And the Scriptures will speak clearly to you. They'll tell you, verse by verse, line by line, God will define things for you. 
as you know the scriptures. Read the Bible for yourself cover to cover, over and over. When you begin, start again. When you get to the end, start again. You know, I got some, there's some sheets out on the table out there when you guys leave today. That I think there's enough. I can make some if there's not. But I put a Bible reading plan out there for everybody last year. Who knew that we wouldn't be together? I hope everybody's been using them. But it goes through each day is a different part of the Bible. It's not just like Genesis to Revelation. One day's the Old Testament prophets. The next day is the Old Testament history books. The next day are the Psalms. The next day are the wisdom, you know, Proverbs. Uh, the next day are the Gospels. The next day are the Epistles. And so each day is a different aspect of it, but through the year you will go through the entire Bible. And I would encourage you, whether it's that or get a plan for yourself and do that, and, and don't worry too much if you don't make it through in a year. I mean, I'll be honest with you, there are some years where I don't do it in a year. But you know what I do? I don't stop until I get through it. And then when I get through it, I go right back and start again. If it took me a year, great. Then I'll start the year again. If it takes me two years, great. Then I'll start again in two years. But I'll continually go through the Bible. And as I go through, what I would encourage you guys to do, it's what I do, is look for Jesus in those scriptures. Look for how all of it is pointing to him. Because Jesus tells us that's what they do. John chapter 5 and verse 39, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Do you know what scriptures Jesus was talking about when he said this? He wasn't talking about Peter and James and Hebrews. He was talking about the Old Testament. He was talking about the law. He was talking about the rituals. He was talking about the historical books. He's saying they point and they testify of me. The indication is they all do. They're all pointing to him. The Apostle Paul even tells us that the law serves that very purpose, right? Galatians chapter 3 Verses 21 through 24, Galatians 3.21, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Do you know that it still does that? When I go through and I'm reading in my readings those laborious books of Scripture that talk about eat this, don't eat this, do this, don't do this, and you're just wanting to skim through there, there isn't a moment that I'm not rejoicing in my heart of what Jesus has done and how he was using all those things to show us that we could not keep all of the intricacies required to attain righteousness on our own. So even there, the law is loudly screaming, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. This is what he's done for you. And it points me, it points you back to the cross. And we see the reality of Jesus. We begin to understand the work he did for us on that cross, a work that we were incapable of doing. He had to go to the cross to do that for us. It was the scriptures that Jesus opened up as evidence about himself for those he spoke with on the road to Emmaus, right? After his resurrection. 
Here's what it says in, in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. I won't elaborate this too much because one year we will get to this passage in our study of Luke. But it says this in verse 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He did a massive Bible study from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way through the law for these disciples that were mourning because Jesus was gone, right? And he's showing how it points to himself. And, 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 and then listen to what it proclaims of what they said in verse 32 of that same passage, Luke 24, verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened up the scriptures to us? The scriptures became the very evidence of who they were talking with and who had been resurrected. It pointed back to Jesus. It was the scriptures that Jesus opened up for his disciples to reveal the truth about himself as he gathered with them after his resurrection. We know from Luke 24 and verse 44 through 45, it says this, Luke 24, verse 44, Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Listen, I'm sure you've heard that old expression, the proof is in the pudding, right? That may be applicable to some things in life, but I would argue that when it comes to Jesus, the proof is in the Scriptures. The proof is in the Scriptures. And that's where we need to be. Your doubts, your doubts are normal. It's a normal and expected part of your life. But like John, if you want to overcome those doubts, then let me just encourage you to look for the proof of who Jesus is and how he has fulfilled the Scriptures. Look at the evidence and your doubts will quickly, quickly fade away because the proof is in the scriptures. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.